Well, good evening, folks. Uh, it's Wednesday night, and uh, I wanted to talk to you again this evening out of the Psalms. I mentioned last week how uh, in the ups and downs of life, many people love to turn to the book of Psalms. There's so much emotion in them as well as uh, teaching. A lot of people just find special comfort in them. And so tonight I want to talk to you out of Psalm chapter 3. And we're going to talk this evening about resting in the Lord. Uh, I want to talk to you uh, from three main points tonight. The believer's trials, the believer's trust, and the believer's triumph. So I want to invite you to get a copy of God's Word. And uh, again, we'll be in Psalm 3. We'll look at the psalm pretty much in its entirety. And if you would also find the book of 2 Samuel, I'll be making reference uh, to that a little bit later. But uh, let's begin with the word of prayer, and then we'll get started. Father, we thank you for this time that we can look into your word, and we pray that your Holy Spirit would open our minds and hearts that we might see clearly the things that you have written for us and that your Holy Spirit might apply them to our lives. God, that you might strengthen us. We continue to pray for our nation during this period of time, for our leaders, that you would grant them wisdom uh, from above. And Father, we pray that you'd wrap your loving arms around our church members and continue to be a shepherd to them and uh, keep them safe and strong uh, during this time and be our refuge and our tower of strength. Again tonight, as we look into your word, uh, speak to us and bring about the transformation in our lives that only you can accomplish. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, let's read together Psalm 3. In Psalm 3, the scripture says, Lord, how many are my foes, how many rise up against me. Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. But you, Lord, are a shield around me, my glory, the one who lifts my head high. I call out to the Lord, and he answers me from his holy mountain. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear, though tens of thousands assail me on every side. Arise, Lord, deliver me, my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. We know as the book of Psalms begins, uh, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are foundational psalms. Psalm 1 stresses the importance of God's word, God's law in the believer's life. And then Psalm 2 stresses the ultimate triumph of the Messiah. Well, after those two psalms, there are a number of psalms that deal with various circumstances that come into the godly person's life in which we're called upon to trust in God. Psalm 3 leads that list, and you know, coming up first, that is, in the book of Psalms, uh, it heads the list and it describes a person 
who is in great physical danger as a new day dawns. Now, because of verse 5, if you look back at verse 5, I lie down and sleep, I wake again because the Lord sustains me. Because of that, it is generally believed that this was a morning psalm. So as the day is beginning, this is a psalm for the beginning of the day. And, and David is describing a very dangerous period in his life. But how he was able to awaken refreshed. Uh, then in Psalm 4, look at the way Psalm 4 ends. He says, in peace I will lie down and sleep for you alone, Lord, make me dwell in safety. And so Psalm 4 is considered an evening psalm. And so we have a, a morning psalm and an evening psalm. Well, Psalm 3 describes how in the midst of trials, David learns to put his trust in God. David's life and what David was going through was very much different from what you might be going through in your life. But folks, there's common lessons that, that we can learn as we read about the uh, saints of God in the Bible. Uh, you know, Paul writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 10 and says that what happened to them is a lesson to us. And so as we read about the saints of God, even in the Old Testament, and see what God taught them, there's tremendous lessons in our own lives. And we see that here in, in Psalm 3. Well, the first thing I want you to see with me uh, tonight is the believer's trust. And read with me again verses 1 and 2. He says, Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. Let's spend a few moments here. I actually think that... Uh, Point number two and point number three will mean a great deal in your life. But folks, we need to journey through this psalm with David and, and we, need, we need to see his progression of thought until we get to what he's able to say in verses three and following. So let's, let's look a little bit at what he's saying here about the believer's trials. As we begin looking at these first two verses, we notice right off that we have a number of first in Psalm 3. It's the first psalm in which the genre is given. It's a psalm. This is the first time the word psalm has occurred. It's the Hebrew word mizmor. Uh, meaning a poem, a poem that was to be sung to musical instruments. It's also the first poem or the first psalm of which King David is said to be the author. It's also the first psalm to give us the historical context. If you'll look right up above verse 1, you'll see the heading. It says, a psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom. And so this is the first psalm that gives us that historical marker. And so again, it's the first one to give the genre, being a psalm, the author, David, and the historical 
uh, setting. Now, to, to understand more about when King David was fleeing from his son Absalom, I'd like you to take time afterwards tonight on your own to go back to 2 Samuel uh, verse, uh, I mean chapter 15 and begin reading there. In fact, you may want to even back up a few chapters uh, previous to that because what you're going to see in those chapters in 2 Samuel is how Absalom killed his brother Amnon. And David grieved over the loss of Amnon. And Absalom ends up running away because of that. After a few years have gone by, David brings Absalom back. But their relationship was never the same again after that. Well, 2 Samuel tells us that Absalom was a very nice-looking young man. And he's a very charismatic type of fella too. And so while his father David is within the city walls and conducting all of the affairs of government, Absalom sits himself down out at the city gates and everybody who's coming up to see David, Absalom stops them and counsels with them. He ends up telling everybody exactly what they want to hear. He butters them up. He flatters them. He encourages them. He satisfies their itching ears. And so the Bible tells us in 2 Samuel what ends up happening is that Absalom steals the hearts of the people away from David. Let me bring this home to you a little bit. Now understand the person that I want to speak about would never do this because I believe he's a person of very high character, uh, good morals and good character. I, I'm speaking of our vice president, Mike Pence. But think with me how disappointed you would be if we were to learn someday, again, like I say, I, I don't think this would ever happen, but what if you were to learn that he was going behind the president's back and he was meeting with people and saying essentially, you don't want to listen to what the president's saying or you don't want to look at what he's doing. Come over to me and listen to me and follow my counsel. Imagine the type of tense situation that would be set up if something like that were to happen. Well, that's exactly what Absalom is doing against his father, David. He's flattering the people and he's stealing their hearts away from his father. He's planning a coup against his father. He's going to take over the kingdom. Well, Absalom goes down to Hebron and he raises up a rebellion against uh, David. It's, it's all so sudden and unexpected. When David finds out about this, all he knows to do at the moment is to flee. And you look back at uh, 2 Samuel chapter 15 and verse 30, 
We're told there, but David continued up the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went. His head was covered, and he was barefoot. And so he's leaving Jerusalem and the protection of the city. He goes down through the valley, and and he's going up the other side, the, the Mount of Olives, and he's heartbroken because of what Absalom is doing. He's he's weeping. He's a a dejected king. And then on top of that, you look over at chapter 16 and verses 5 through 8, there's this man by the name of Shemai that is hurling insults and curses down on David. And one of David's men says, do you want me to go over there and and kill him? And David says, no, maybe God's put it into his heart to curse me. But folks, when you see what's going on with King David there, you can understand that he is a very demoralized man. He's he's dejected. And and to just think that his his own son is doing this against him. It had to have been a heartbreaking situation. Well, that's the background of Psalm 3. David is not only down in the dumps, but he is also in danger because of what all Absalom is is planning. Now, you know, you may not be facing a military battle against you every morning when you wake up, but nonetheless, you might be facing a battle of some sort. You might be going through some kind of warfare at work. Uh, I hope you're not a part of the type of environment that I speak of, but maybe you are. Maybe you're a part of an environment where there's a lot of egos and a lot of backstabbing and a lot of jealousy and you just feel like every day when you go into the office to work you're you're going into a situation of warfare or you might be facing uh, some kind of trial with your children going through something with them that has you very discouraged it could be any number of trials I like what the Baptist preacher C.H. Spurgeon said on one occasion He said, troubles come in flocks, yea, sorrow hath a numerous family. Troubles come in flocks, yea, sorrow hath a numerous family. That's how troubles can be sometimes. Now, when we see what all's going on here and and we understand things like this happen sometimes, this approach of the evil one has sometimes been labeled as his shock tactics, Satan's shock tactics. He's just trying to overwhelm us with all kinds of trials and and difficulties. Here was David going through that. And look at his cry in verse 1. He says, Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? David has many foes. The Hebrew word for foe here signifies an oppressor. An oppressor or someone who constricts. Uh, The idea of narrowness 
also comes into play, being closed in on. Some see in other places the idea of even hand-to-hand combat, uh, hand-to-hand combat. The idea is of a foe closing in on you and constricting you. There's an Old Testament scholar by the name of Dr. Gerald Wilson, and he's written a commentary on the book of Psalms, and he gives the idea here to this word of a boa constrictor. If you've ever seen pictures of a boa constrictor curling around its victim and then it begins squeezing in on its victim and squeezing the life out of its victim and crushing its victim. Well, that's the picture here in the Hebrew of David's foes, what they're doing. And also in the text, there's the idea that his foes have multiplied. In other words, this is not a static situation. It's like every moment that passes, there are people who are joining in on Absalom's side against David, and they are closing in on him more and more and more. The danger that he is in is growing ever more by the hour. On top of that, here's Shemai that I mentioned a moment ago. Once a gentleman that was a friend of King David's and now he's turned against him and he's cursing him. And so look at what David says there in verse 2. He, he says, many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. They're even trying to convince David that maybe all of this is of God, that even God has turned his back on David. And they're saying, David, God is not even going to have anything to do with you in this to help you. And so on top of the physical danger, they're hurling insults at him. They're tearing him down through words. It's an emotional battle and a psychological battle on top of being a real physical battle. And that, that idea really comes out in the Hebrew. When it says that many are saying of me, you look at those words in the English text, those two words of me, and in the Hebrew those words speak of the very core, the essence of somebody's being. It's the Hebrew word, we would, we would bring it over into English, we would spell it N-E-P-E-S. And what David is saying here, his foes are trying to cut him deep at the very core of his being, down to his very soul. They're taking their words like daggers and thrusting them in deep and then twisting them around. Maybe you've been there before. Someone is doing something to hurt you, and on top of that, they are insulting you in a way that hurts very deeply. Now, as I mentioned earlier, they are saying that not even God will save him or deliver him. The Hebrew word that refers to that, God saving him, is Yeshua. And we remember that that's the word, that's the name that was given to Joshua and then to Jesus himself. Yeshua, God saves, God delivers. Again, as Gerald Wilson points out in this commentary, there's something very significant here. At the end of verse 2, 
they're using a more generic name for God, the name Elohim, instead of the covenant-keeping name Yahweh. And Dr. Wilson points out that in the Psalms, unbelievers and pagans repeatedly refer to Israel's God as Elohim and not by the, pers the more personal name Yahweh. Now, it's not that believers don't also use the name Elohim because they do. His point is simply that in the Psalms, it tends to be unbelievers who use that name instead of Yahweh. And he says because of the consistency in the Psalms of this difference when referring to God, he sees the possibility here that we're to understand that it is unbelievers who are the ones who are after David. Now that certainly makes sense that it would be unbelievers who would be seeking to take somebody's very life. And it's unbelievers chanting at David that not even his God can stop them. I mean, that's a pretty arrogant expression, isn't it? That David's God won't even be able to do anything about it. But now, interestingly enough, as we're going to see in a moment, at the end of the psalm, David is going to say, from Yahweh comes my salvation or my deliverance. Isn't that great? They're saying God can't save him. And David is responding by saying, yes, he can. Yahweh, my God, who is the covenant-keeping God, he will watch over me and he will save me. Well, at this point in the psalm, in your translation, you might have a little word out to the side that says, Selah. Scholars debate about what that word means. It may imply that we're simply to kind of pause here a moment and, and, and think. In other words, just kind of pause and think about your life, think about your hardships, think about your circumstances, Think about what you may be going through that is so overwhelming to your life right now. Just think about all that for a moment and let it sink in. Now secondly, this leads to something else in David's life. The, the believer's trust. The believer's trust. He says in verse 3, but you, Lord, are a shield around me, my glory, the one who lifts my head high. I call out to the Lord, and he answers me from his holy mountain. The pause has evidently helped David to kind of stop and look at things in perspective. Folks, if we look at the circumstances alone and we camp out there, we can become so devastated and so discouraged. Think about the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. What would have happened in his life if he were not able to look beyond his circumstances? Do you remember what he said in Philippians chapter 1 about his circumstances? 
because he was under house arrest and he was, he was chained to a Roman guard. And the Philippians were very concerned about him. And Paul writes to them to encourage them and he says, look, I, I want you to realize that my circumstances have turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. Paul has ended up probably in Rome, not under the circumstances he would have chosen. He's, he's there as a prisoner, but he's chained to the Roman guard. So these are some of the most powerful people in the world in the most powerful city in the world. I mean, he's got a captive audience. And so Paul says, I want you to understand that God has opened this door for me that wouldn't have happened any other way. You see my point? Paul's able to look beyond his circumstances to see what God's doing through them. Well, folks, we need to pause and reflect on our trials so that we won't stay there thinking about them, but so that we'll move on and put our trust and our hope in God. And that's what David is doing here. In verses 1 and 2, David's eyes were on his enemies. And there's despair. But in verses 3 and 4, David's, David's eyes are on God. And there's great hope. You may remember that that's the same thing that happened with the spies that were sent in to spy out the land. Remember that story? Ten of them could only see giants. And they came back and reported that we were like grasshoppers in their sight. There's no way that we can go in and take the land. But do you remember Joshua and Caleb? Their eyes were not on man. Their eyes were on God. They came back and they reported we can easily take the land because God has promised it to us. So here you had the majority of men focusing in on man and seeing nothing but hindrances. Here you have Joshua and Caleb and they're looking to God. And they know that God's going to deliver them. What's the difference? Did they look at different things? Did they look at different people? No, it's just that the ten focused on men. The two focused on God. And folks, that's important. As you and I look at our life, as we look at our various challenges, don't start with man, start with God. That's what David does here. We focus too much on man. We focus too much on the world. It's no accident in the Bible that the Bible, you go back to the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1.1, and, 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 and what's the very first thing we read in Genesis 1.1? It says, in the beginning, God. Right away, the Bible is wanting us to put our eyes first and foremost on God. A right perspective on God makes all the difference you see man is temporal God's eternal man is frail he is but dust God is almighty 
Folks, man doesn't control your outcome. God does. Now, David learned four things when he thought about God. Let's, let's look at them in the text. Again, I hope you have a Bible in front of you. But as, as, you, as you look at the text in verse 3, what's David say? What's the first thing? He says, but you, Lord, are a shield around me. I want you to think about the language here. This is the language of battle. David had been a warrior. He, know, he knew what it was like to go out in battle. And he knew all about a shield. You'd take a shield and you'd block the incoming arrows or swords or daggers. The shield offers protection. And for the believer, David said, God is a shield. Now, the word that David uses here for shield in the Hebrew was, or, or normally the word when, when he says, but you, but you, Lord, are a shield around me, the, the word for shield was normally the small shield. It, it was a small shield that you would hold in your hand and, and whatever side the danger, the attack was coming at you from, you would be able to spin the shield around and, and, and block the danger. But look at what David is saying here. God, you're not just that little shield, but you are a shield around me. In other words, God, you're the one who has enveloped me from the tip of my head to the soles of my feet and on every side you are a shield about me. You're not this little tiny shield that I've got to keep moving around. God, you have me encased. You have me protected. Folks, isn't that comforting to know that God is your shield and he's my shield whatever God determines to do in accordance with his nature and character he will do God can protect the believer any direction that trouble comes if that's what God determines in your life now the Bible never claims that God won't let you go through trouble but if God determines to protect you from it, there's no side, there's no angle in which you are vulnerable. God has you covered. Now that's comforting in the midst of hardship, isn't it? We may go through a trial, but God has his hand on the thermostat. God's the one who controls it. We need to remember that. God is sovereign. And the trial that he has you in, the hardship that he has you going through, will turn out the way that he determines. Now, back to 2 Samuel 17 for just a moment. 2 Samuel 17. I want you to notice something else. When, when uh, there, there was a gentleman by the name of Ohithphel, oh, 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 that's a mouthful, isn't it? Some of these Old Testament names are, are tough. Ohith, oh, 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 
fell. I'm tongue-tangled. Anyway, he said to Absalom, now let me choose 12,000 men and I will arise and pursue David tonight and I'll only kill David and I'll let everybody else go. Well, I want you to notice what God had done instead. God had put a plant in Absalom's court. His name was Hushai. Hushai said, no, I don't like that advice. I don't like Ahithophel's advice. Here's what you need to do instead. Hushai's counsel seemed even more severe toward David than the previous counsel. Because the first guy had said, you know, I'll get 12,000 to pursue, we'll just kill David. But Hushai said, no, involve everybody from Dan to Beersheba, pursue David and wipe him out and wipe everybody out with him. Well, Absalom and everybody around Absalom liked that more severe plan better. But as you read on in 2 Samuel 17, you find out that through Hushai's counsel, the Lord had already purposed to defeat the counsel of Ahithophel, I just can't get that word out tonight, and to bring disaster and defeat on Absalom. Now folks, talk about the sovereignty of God. You see an example of it right there. You see, in his sovereignty, God was a shield to David. He had David's back, he had David's front, he had David all around. He had even seen to it that somebody had got in Absalom's court that would give Absalom counsel that would end up uh, costing Absalom his life and his defeat, of course. All of the armies on earth could not have killed King David at this point because God was a shield to him. That's what David is saying, but you, Lord, are a shield around me, my glory and the one who lifts my head high. I don't have to fear. He goes on secondly to say, God is our glory, our hope. And then thirdly, God is the one who lifts up my head. Sin beats us down. Absalom's sin had David uh, beat down, beaten down, his head lowered. He, he's barefoot and weeping. But God's able to lift us up and encourage us. They're trying to demoralize David on top of killing him. But God lifts David's head up. David can hold his head high. Folks, for a king to lift one's head up would symbolize acceptance. David's enemies may have rejected David, but God had accepted him. And then fourthly, he points out here that God hears our prayers. Not only is God mighty to save, but God is attentive to our needs. God is a warrior to his people, but God is also a shepherd to his people, and God 
is a heavenly father to his people. Note the second Selah. God saying, pause again and think about what's just been said. And then the third thing and the last thing I want you to see tonight is the believer's triumph. Look beginning at verse 5. I love this. He says, I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear though tens of thousands assail me on every side. Arise, Lord, deliver me, my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. Folks, verse 5 is not a statement of a man spending the night at a holiday inn with no enemies. It's a statement of a man out in the open field with all of his enemies pursuing him and hunting him down as though he were some kind of wild animal. And yet, look at what he says. I lie down and sleep. I, I wake again because the Lord sustains me. Talk about the peace that passes all understanding. That's what you have right there. David goes on to say, I will not be afraid. Tremendous peace and courage. If you've done much reading on the Psalms, it may be that you have the expositions by Dr. James Montgomery Boyce. Boyce has some wonderful expositions on the Psalms. And in Psalm 3, Boyce gives a wonderful illustration talking about David's peace and courage right here. Boyce gives the illustration of Martin Luther and the Protestant Reformation. Now, listen to what Boyce talks about. He, he speaks about how the, the Roman Catholic Church had, had taught that justification comes also through what a man does. Man must keep the sacraments. Man must do this. Man must do that. The grace of God comes to man through the sacraments and other means as well. And, and so the Catholic Church was teaching, as long as you stay connected to the church and receive the sacraments, that's essentially what matters. In raising money for St. Peter's Cathedral, they even began to say that you could purchase your loved ones out of purgatory if you would give to the building program. They, they had a jingle that said, when the coin and the coffer rings... The soul from purgatory springs. Well, along came a monk by the name of Martin Luther, along with others too, who had begun reading scripture and, and seeing what the Bible says about justification. Luther began to study the book of Romans, the book of Galatians in particular, and he saw that the gospel that the church had been preaching was really no gospel at all. He saw that justification is not a matter of what man does. 
It's the free gift of God. Justification is through grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. He wanted to take the mass out of Latin so that the common man in the pew could understand what was going on. And he wanted scripture to be in the language of man so that the common man on the street could start to read it and understand it for himself. And so he posted the 95 theses on the door of the church at Wittenberg. Well, the church demanded a meeting with Luther. They were ready to condemn Luther as a heretic. And so they called a meeting at Worms. If you look at it in English, it looked like worms, like a fishing worm. But at Worms, uh, it, the meeting was called the Diet of Worms. They demanded that Luther come to the Diet of Worms and give an accounting of himself and everything that he was saying. And they promised Luther safe travel. Well, that didn't mean much to Luther's friends because uh, they had heard it said that you don't have to deliver on the promise of safe travel to a heretic. Because again, they were calling Martin Luther a heretic. And just, just before, they had promised John Huss safe travel as well, but then they had burned him at the stake. Well, as Luther approached Worms, a friend of Luther's got a message to him, said, Luther, don't go to Worms. Just don't go. Luther said to the messenger, go back and tell your master that even if there should be as many devils in Worms as tiles upon the rooftops, I'm still going. Now, folks, where did that kind of peace and courage come from? It came from God. It came from God. It's the same kind of courage that, that David is expressing here. Yes, there's enemies all around me, tens of thousands. They're multiplying all the more every day. And yet, I was able to lay down and sleep and awake in the morning. Peace and comfort. He says a wonderful thing in verse 7. Arise, Lord, deliver me, my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. Strike or uh, smitten is in the past tense. In other words, David is proclaiming here that the victory is already won. God's already won this victory. And then he closes in verse 8, giving a great statement. From the Lord, from Yahweh comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. Folks, if God has saved you and you're his child, you have a great salvation. God is your shield. God is your defender. We don't have to worry about all of the trials and challenges that come along in life. What we need to do is keep our eyes on God. God is sovereign and the test or the trial will only go on for as long as God determines.
The trial will not be more severe than God determined. It won't be less severe, but it won't be more severe either. And so we can put everything about our lives in God's hands. And we can trust Him. And I want to, I want to invite you tonight to do that. Put your life and all your circumstances into God's hands. And trust Him. Rest in the Lord. Because in Him, in Yahweh, comes salvation and deliverance. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for that salvation that You give us through Jesus Christ our Lord. Father, I pray that You would be a shield and a defender to Your people. That Your people would be able to lie down and rest in peace. God, may we keep our eyes on you. and May we be encouraged. And Father, for that one who does not know you as, as Savior, they've never come to Christ, I pray that even now they would look to your Son, the Lord Jesus, and they'd say, Jesus, forgive me of my sins. Cleanse me and reconcile me to God. Lord, for that one who's coming to you in humility and confession, we trust that you will give them your glorious salvation. And God, that they too will see that they can put their trust in you and not be afraid. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.